Hey everyone, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for listening and welcome back to the last question. I know it's been a couple of weeks and to a couple of you in particular, I owe an episode. This is not that episode, fair warning. Uh, we are into season two. <clears throat> this will be episode two of season two. Not as originally planned. Um, the last couple of weeks have been, well, heinous. Uh, absolutely heinous, um, but ended on uh, an incredibly high note, uh, a note for which I am grateful, and a set of circumstances, particularly in the last, I'd say, three days or so, um, that I that I really can't explain, uh, and and that's in a positive sense, but it's really tough to explain. So, more on that as as time goes on. Perhaps, perhaps we'll get into some of it tonight. But tonight, uh, or today, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, we are going to be joined by Matthew Omaha Ditson, a dear friend of mine from my Air Force days. We were classmates uh, in California during ICBM ops training. He went to the base in Montana. I went to North Dakota, and then we were reunited again in the same squadron, actually, in Wyoming for part of my tour while I was there, and then I left, and I think he hung around for a little bit longer in a different assignment. And then, uh, if I remember correctly, he's in Washington, D.C. now, serving at the Pentagon, serving that dreaded Pentagon tour. We have a lot to talk about, uh, and I'm excited to have him on. He is also a podcaster and more experienced than I am, so perhaps he'll school me here in a few things. And he is also a published author. He wrote a book, published, I think now, it's been two years. It's bad that I didn't write that down but let me check the details. He wrote a book uh, on leadership called Nuclear Leadership, an ICBM operator splits the leadership atom, A-T-O-M in all caps. It's an acronym that I will let him explain. Uh, published in 2019. Yeah, so we're, we're coming up actually, we're at we're two and a half years uh, since the book has been published, available on Amazon. I highly recommend the book and uh, recommend that you go and grab it, whether for you or for a friend or family member. Um, if you listen to this, to this podcast all last season, you know, we talked a lot about leadership. We talked about the military and transition, uh, and we talked about a variety of things, some positive, some negative. Um, and some of those elements are going to continue to come up as the second season goes on. But what I really wanted to do with this season and really with the show was expand our horizons and really ask important questions of as many people as I could. We're still gonna do solo episodes. In fact, I've, I've got one on the docket that will come out a week after Matthew's. So this one's gonna come out next week. Uh, today is Friday, March 18th, for those keeping track. Um, we'll publish this one here probably early next week to, to make up for some lost time. And then we'll have a solo episode. And I have another interview scheduled next week that will come out a couple of weeks after that i'm excited to bring you that one too that one um that guest whose whose name i'll keep as a uh i'll keep in suspense for right now that one actually came up i found an article of his online only because i was referred to it by somebody who didn't like it uh read the article have plenty of questions and it turns out i knew this person so um excited to have him on we're going to talk next week, and then you'll hear that in a couple of weeks. Matthew Ditson, 
my age in the Air Force, so he's going on 14, 15 years, I think now. Um, feel great officer, great person, great human being, uh, a great officer and a great friend. He and his wife, Catherine, talk about parenting on their podcast, uh, wrote a book, like I said, they've got three great kids and um, really it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk with them. So won't spend any more time blabbering on. You'll hear from me at the end, but without further ado, Matthew Omaha Ditson. Okay, and we're recording. Thanks, Omaha, for joining me. Yeah, um, glad to be here. What to me is an hour late, but really it's right on time because I had no idea where you lived. So <laughs> for the record and for the listeners, um, well, we, we might as well start the normal way, I guess. So I, I do an intro before the show normally that you wouldn't have heard. I pre-recorded that way. It's, it's not an awkward you know, love fest and or weird dissertation on your life while you're just staring at me on Zoom. Um, but I mentioned you and Catherine and the kids. And so if you would to start off, uh, well, and that we've known each other since Vandenberg. So we've known each other a long time, been stationed together a couple of times. I did say in the intro that you were stationed in DC. So that's already strike one, um, the root of our time zone issues. But anyway, if you would start out with a little bit about yourself and what made Matthew Ditson Matthew Ditson from the beginning and then we'll kind of jump off from there. Yeah well so I grew up in Denver Colorado just outside Denver in Littleton. Um, yeah uh, wanted to go to the Air Force Academy from a pretty young age. Um, I was a fifth grader when I first made that a goal. Um, I wanted to fly planes. Uh, my dad was actually in the Army Air Corps. Um, so before the Air Force. Yeah. So I do a little bit of math there. Yeah. He, he was born in uh, 1928. So he'll turn 94 this August. So uh, I guess that in and of itself is a, a little bit unusual. But um, he had always wanted to fly um, and didn't really get a chance to because by the time he joined, um, World War II had, had kind of come to an end and uh, they needed people to fly desks more than they needed them to fly planes. And so he uh, was assigned to a, a desk job, uh, was actually assigned to F.E. Warren um, for a time. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah. So um, we have that in common. Um, and then uh, had me obviously quite a bit later in life. Um, and then uh, he, his love of flying and, and airplanes kind of came to me. And I, um, so I was, from the time I was about 10, uh, wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. Um, and then uh, eventually did get in. Uh, and then my freshman year there, um, I was playing a pickup game of uh, touch football. Um, and I was playing defense and, uh, the guy I was guarding crossed with another guy and I, uh, caught an elbow right to the temple, uh, knocked me out, um, spent a night in the hospital and, um, they, they said, you know, uh, probably pilot training is probably not going to be in your future. And I was like, okay, uh. Well, at the time I had wanted to go to med school anyway. So I was like, all right, you know, maybe not that big of a deal. Okay. Fast forward a few years. 
uh, med school was not going to happen. I did not have the grades for it. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, maybe pilot training is a possibility. And they said, okay, well, based on this concussion, you'd have to submit a waiver. And I was like, okay, no big deal. Everything's waiverable, right? Um, so it's about, yeah. yeah, it's about 10 days or so before I'm supposed to find out what UPT base I'm going to, what pilot training base that I'm going to go to. And they said, yeah, your waiver did not get passed through. So I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Said, well, we'll reclassify you, but we'll give you something that was on your list. Um, so I got reclassified to space and missiles, which was on my list at the very bottom. Uh, I kind of put it on there as a, as a, Hey, in the worst case, I could go there for four years and I could get a master's degree and then I could go do something else. Um, so when you, so when you put space and missiles, did you realistically think missiles or did you assume space? Like a lot of so, people did, I think back then. So I realistically thought missiles, um, but once I got it, I was like, well, maybe space, I could end up at Peterson or something close to yeah. home, you know, be all right. But, but then, so then I, I showed up to Vandenberg and I turned in my medical records as part of my in-processing and they're like, that's interesting. Looks like your waiver was not accepted. And I said, yeah, I was supposed to go to pilot training, blah, 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 tell them the story. And they're like, no, this isn't a missile or a, a, a pilot training waiver. This is your space and missile waiver. You're not medically qualified for this job. I don't know why they even spent any money to send you here. And so I said, okay, so what do I do? And they said, well, we have to reclassify you. So they looked around at Vandenberg for any openings in some other career field that they could put me in because they didn't want to PCS me again and spend the money to move me somewhere else. So you're at the mercy of whatever's open on the base now. Exactly. I did not know this. Okay. And then they said, you know what? It might be easier for us to just push a waiver through kind of under the table. And so that's what they did. And I ended up, you know, so I, I'm, I still have to get a waiver renewal every five years. Um, to stay in this career field. You have to get um, a waiver renewal? Yeah, it's only good for five years at a time. And I basically have to stay symptom-free for that whole time. So, so yeah, okay. they, they pushed it through. They allowed me to go through um, Space 100 and uh, missile qualification training um, where I met you for the first time. And then uh, we went our our separate ways. I went up to Malmstrom for four years and then um, ended up uh, staying in missiles and going to uh, FE Warren, where we met the, the second time. Again, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, got to work together with you in the 320th Missile Squadron, which was awesome. Um, and then since then, I went to uh, did spend some time at the Pentagon and now I've been in Nebraska for about a year and a half. So well, that's even worse. You've been in Nebraska a year and a half. <laughs> you've been in Nebraska, you've been in Omaha since before I got out. Cause I've been out only since yeah. April last yep. year. Wow. Okay. Did you, when did you PCS? Was it in the summer of 20? Yeah, it was, uh, no. Or like later. Right? Yeah. Summer of 20. 
yeah. So in the cycle, maybe it was COVID. I'll just I'll blame it on COVID because yeah, just blame it on COVID. That's, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, well, I'll, I'll ask about that in a second. There's a there's a lot. See, this is what's cool about the personal history because there's stuff coming out that I never heard before. Um, yeah. But I want to pick on the medical school thing actually for a second. Okay. Where did medical was it medical school or flying or did you want to be a flight surgeon? What was the medical school piece of the puzzle? Yeah, I mean, I had thought of flight surgeon. I I had so I had kind of dabbled in in flying a little bit, but then I I just decided that um, my real interest was in more of uh, chemistry and biochemistry, and I. I thought that could be a good fit and that could be a good way to help people more than like dropping bombs or, you know, filling up planes with, with gas or, you know, different things that pilots would do. And I felt like that there was a more stable path on the outside um, for when my, my air force career came to an end. Uh, Whereas pilots, you're kind of at the whims of the airlines, if you want to keep doing that, um, which can fluctuate. So, uh, a lot of things went into it. I did think that flight surgeon would be cool because then it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get to fly, but then you also get to do, you know, practice medicine and stuff. So um, I definitely bounced that around a little bit, but yeah, it was a, a mix of mix of both. Okay. So then when, when the time came, when you found out that you weren't going to pilot training, or, or really when you found out it was going to be space and missiles, Catherine was already in the picture, right? Yeah. Because you've known each other been, for a, yeah. a long time. Yeah, we met in, in high school. Yeah. Um, so we'd been dating about a year and a half before I even went to the academy. Um, and then all four years through, we were together. So yeah, she was by my side for all of that. So what did she think about the space and missile about the the hard turn to Vandenberg and a, a totally different life, perhaps than what you had thought about. Yeah, she wasn't psyched, um, but I think she was she was more um, just heartbroken for me. You know, she she was like, I know that the you know flying was something that you wanted to do for a long time and talked about doing. Yeah. Um, so I think she was a little bummed about that. Uh, you know, for me, not so much for what it meant for her, but just like she knew what it meant for me. Yeah. And so just super supportive though. So then how about your dad? And I think we've talked about this before that your dad is is a good bit older and he, I don't remember the Air Corps part. So to say that he's an Air Corps veteran is, is unique and something that is, that is something specific that certainly a lot of people who are left around can't say. What did he think, what does he think about your experience as he watches you now go through the modern Air Force experience? What, what does he say or does he say much about what the Air Force is like and, and the stories that you tell him? Oh, well, he's uh, very proud of me and just has been, has been one of my biggest supporters um, throughout. And uh, when I tell him about the things that I've done. And then he looks around at some of the guys that I graduated with and how much they've been deployed and how, um, you know, obviously I, I had a friend uh, pass away in a helicopter accident, you know, and those kind of things. Like at the end of the day, he's like, you know, it really couldn't have turned out much better for, 
for you and for your family, um, you know, in terms of, you know, yeah, you got to deploy out to the missile field and the schedule is not consistent and those kind of things, but, you know, you'd be gone half a month, you know, all year round, or you can be gone half a year and, and, you know, so it, it balances out, you yeah. know, in some ways. And you're relatively safe when you're gone half a month every month. Exactly. But you're two or three hours away and really in the grand scheme, you're, you're under much less threat day to day than exactly. <clears throat> and a lot yeah. of our friends in the global war on terror era. That's true. Right. Okay. So then, so then what did you think? So when you got to Malmstrom and you know, when you went to Malmstrom and I went to Minot and in those days, the first tour was four years on the short end, five, five and a half years for, for most of us, if you extended and then, and then stayed on in the missile world. So what did you think? What was it about missiles? Did missiles grab you? Did you, I mean, did you like it? Did you not like it? What did you think as you got to Malmstrom and started pulling alert? Was this a place, clearly you've been around a while now, but was this a place that you thought you would end up staying in for a while or for a career? Uh, definitely not initially uh and initially i was still kind of looking for a way out um i started down the process of uh looking for uh, a transfer to a remotely piloted aircraft uh, i was working my way through the application for that to try to see if i could get out of my missile commitment and get over there um but what really changed it was when i was uh i was a a deputy flight commander, which ridiculous that that was even a thing, but so I was, I was working. Yeah, I know. I was working in the in the office, and uh, it came time for Global Strike Challenge, uh, and my uh, my director of operations at the time um, said basically like, "When are you taking your test um, to to try out for?" For this and I was like you know he, he said it in such a way that it was like not not an option to not take There's it only one answer right yeah right so <clears throat> I was like uh, I'll get it on the schedule and so I took the test I did well enough on it that I was an, an alternate for it so then that at Malmstrom we the alternates became part of the training team um, and so then I ended up uh, being responsible for writing scenarios um, that would basically push the, the bounds of what was normal um, crew operations to try to, to make the, the best crew members even better. And so, and it was that pushing of the envelope and like trying new things and the freedom to um, you know, when we were doing training, it was always very scripted, right? You do, you do this event and you yeah, only do regular one at a time. Yeah. You do one event at a time and you, uh, it has to be presented exactly this way. Otherwise it's not a valid scenario, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so when those shackles were off and we could really find out, okay, what, what can the weapon system actually do? And what can we do as crew members to try to compensate for when things go horribly awry? you know, I was like, there's a lot more to this than what I realized. And so I, I was actually mid 
uh, RPA application when I got um, picked up for this. And I was like, you know what, let's just hold off a year. And it can, when it comes around next year, I can, I can try again if I really want to, you know? So, uh, and then when it came around the next year, I was, I took the test again and I actually got selected as the crew member. So now I was the one getting all the training yeah. and doing the competition. And I had a blast with that too. And so it just sort of grew from there um, that I just, I just got into it. And then when it came time towards the end of my four years there, they said, you know, you can do missiles or you can go to any one of these other career fields. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And I was like, well, I'm sort of doing well with this missile thing. I think there's an opportunity to maybe make it better than what it is if I stick around. Um, and I don't really want to start over somewhere else. And those factors combined said, well, all right, missiles isn't that bad. Missiles it is. <clears throat> yeah. Did you think, what year was that? Was that 12 or 13? Yeah, 12, 13. 12, 13. 13 when I left, so. So what did you think? You said, got a couple of follow-ups to that, but you said there's an opportunity. I don't want to put words in your mouth. There's a, there's a chance to make this better. Yes. Which I remember thinking the same thing. And I knew a couple of people, at least at Minot, who genuinely believed we could do something about the way missiles was. What, what did you think that thing was? Cause before 2014, I mean, it was tough to imagine anything other than inertia carrying us forward. And then maybe some little incremental steps here and there. What, what did you think was possible or what did you foresee yourself being able to do? Yeah, it's it's interesting trying to uh, think about that. Think about where I was back then. I was, uh, I guess I was a little bit uh, arrogant in in some ways um, to think that, you know, looking back on it because uh, really the system was a lot bigger than, than one person was going to, um, you know one person was going to be able to change but uh i i thought that there was opportunity especially if i went to 20th air force headquarters um i thought you know the some of the products that they put out could be better that they could be they could line up in a in a better way so we weren't spinning our wheels all the time and it was all things that we could do better in the system that currently existed uh certainly not throwing out the system and starting with a new system. That wasn't something that I would thought was ever going to happen, but I did think that there, we could find some more efficiencies within our broken system that could help make crew lives, crew members lives better. So where were you in 2014? Where were you stationed Uh, in 2014? I was at FE Warren. You were at Warren in yeah. in january february like the first half of the year already yep okay yeah so i moved in late 2013 um and then went to uh squadron officer school for a couple months so yeah, okay. really i was just getting my feet wet um in january february of 2014 so 
so I don't think I, I haven't, I don't know if I've asked anyone this, it, certainly not in a long time. Because in 2014, in the spring of 2014, it was my experience was vastly different, not really being at the wing and not being connected to the wings very well during that period. What was that period like for you? So as things started to happen in the community and what we know as FIP was starting to happen, what did you think? What did you feel? What were you seeing? Um, particularly since you were new to it, you were new at a different wing. Uh, and all this stuff was kind of happening. Yeah. Well, so I had a couple of big things. You do you remember in the, the college football world when Pete Carroll left USC to coach the Seahawks right before the sanctions hit? I, yeah, I do remember that. That's kind of how I felt. <laughs> was like, like I got out of there just in the nick of time and I felt bad, um, you know, because I, I, the, my peers, um, did not leave. And so they were all experiencing uh, everything. They were there when all the firings happened and, um, yeah. you know, have very deep scar tissue from that. So I, it was, it was a tough balance of trying to be there for them when I couldn't, I wasn't physically close to them. And then also, you know, trying to, uh, you know, acclimate to this different wing where, um, certainly not all but many people looked at me as being the guy from Malmstrom and they're like oh he's one of them yeah. and uh, and um you know and I had I had started to develop some good friendships and have good conversations there too and and people were like I mean every it was the same at all the wings right like it was not a wing specific issue oh yeah no and the, the problems Malmstrom had were not unique right right and so uh I, I kind of knew that before I got there, but then hearing that get having that be validated while I was there um, was certainly uh, a good thing. And then uh, slowly it started to be, you know, the, the stigma started to go away over time. And I became one of them at the Effie Warren people. He washed off the Malmstrom stink once everybody realized everything smelled bad. Right. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, I remember but, hearing multiple stories, but one in particular where I think a senior officer, probably with a star or two on their shoulders, had said to somebody, or it may have been a wing commander, maybe, had said, had suggested at one point to one of the generals that Malmstrom was isolated. It was an isolated case of whatever you'd call it, bad leadership, corruption, problems in the crew force. And I think, I think the general looked him straight in the eye and called his bullshit right there. Cause if you've been in ICBM ops, like five minutes in the old system, you realize quickly that it's, it's definitely a culture that's widespread. It had been decades in the making. Yeah. So what's your looking back on it now and you're, you're still in the community and you're still on active duty. So of course there's, there's, um, well, for the most part, you can you can say whatever you like, but there's certainly um, things I can say perhaps that you can't say, but I'm not gonna push you to that point. The point of the question is, what's your assessment of it now? Even though you're still in the community, right? For me, the, the perspective is different. Of course, I'm detached now. So really my memories kind of freeze in place really as of like 2017, 2018, because even teaching ROTC, you're, you're basically one foot out into the civilian world anyway. Um, 
what's your take on FIP as a program and as a movement, which uh, that's probably a bit too cliche-ish, but I mean, what's, was it worth going through everything we went through 14, 15, 16? Is the community still in a better place than where it was when we started or where is it now? And part of the, part of this is selfish, I'll admit, because I have no idea what's going on, right? And of course, yeah. I can't help but be curious. Yeah. Well, so I think um, there's definitely been a shift. I think overall FIP was a good thing. I think um, the changes that were made needed to be made. Um, I think the, the way that we were, obviously the way we were doing things before was not healthy um, under, you know, what I'll call old missiles. Um, new, new missiles uh, has brought a lot of good things with it. Um, and we were very fortunate being at Effie Warren, we had a leadership team that was fully bought in and fully embraced um, one that, that we, we had a problem before that there was a need for change and was on board with asking questions to figure out what's the best way to get there. I do not believe that that same uh, desire was present across all leaders at all wings at that time, nor does it remain that way. And so there's a, there's a little, and there's always going to be a little bit of pendulum swing, right? Um, so I think we're starting to come, I, we're almost out of, we're, I like to joke that we're now in post new missiles. Now we're not really, we're not back in old missiles, but we're definitely past the new missiles honeymoon phase and things are shifting, um, you know, a little bit back. So, so the hard part about FIP was you had a lot of good momentum at the time and then things happen and they, you know, pe people cycle out of leadership positions and move on to other yeah. things. And then, yeah. uh, you know, the, a lot of people who are in charge now were not at the wings when FIP was happening. Um, so they don't have those same, um, you know, they didn't have the same experience relative to it. They were away from it. Um, and you, we all have a tendency as leaders to go where we're comfortable. Um, and even if that, if, even if what we're comfortable with was not actually what we wanted you know it's like the the we are our fathers after all you know type of mm -hmm. feeling where it's like yeah i didn't i didn't you know want to be you know want to raise my kids this way but this is all i know because that's that's how i was raised it's such an easy pattern to fall into yeah it is yeah so i i i think that's part of that's part of where we are now Okay, so in that I hear that the regression you think is is natural and, and inevitable to some extent regressing from especially what I what I would say was a pretty far pendulum swing away from old missiles like in some cases we did things the opposite just to do them the opposite. Yes. So, so the regression you would say is natural, some of the some of the trying to find a better, uh, the next, the other word in my mind was backslide, which is 
sounds negative, but if it, if it's part of the deal, it's part of the deal to kind of normalize ourselves. Yeah. Well, so I think, um, I don't think we'll go all the way back. I don't think the pendulum will swing all the way back because I think, uh, there will, again, there, there are natural leadership changes that happen. So I think we'll eventually progress more towards the new missile side of things. Um, as, as people cycle through and they see, uh, the benefits of it, but I think we are, um, in a point in time where, uh, where we just have to have to be careful about how far back we swing that pendulum, because it could easily, you know, uh, crush the, the crew members that are there now. And now, and then we all of a sudden have a retention problem. And then we don't get the, the, the people who stick around are then the people who look like the leaders who are doing, I don't want to say the wrong things, but who are acting in a certain way. Does that make sense? Like, I followed you up until, so you're, so if we backslide too far, we'll, we'll start, we'll develop a retention issue. Too many people are going to get burned out. We're going to lose yeah. whatever intellectual capital we had, plus the young folks that are on board. Right. And then, so then all we'll have left are the people who, you know, just who, who were okay with the pendulum being yeah, that okay. far right. stream. And then they grow more of themselves. Yeah, so it becomes the, the, yeah, they develop their own self-licking ice cream cone and we end up at that backslid position if we drive too many people out. Right. Do you think, is the community at risk for that? Or that's just, I, I agree, that's a, that's a risk. Is it at that point yet though? Or is it from your perspective and being outside the wings still? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, we host a lot of uh, wing um visits like people just come in to see what's what is stratcom all about and everything and uh they they tend to be fairly positive and uh give me hope for for um you know that 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 we're doing the right things still um it's just so it's a it's one possible outcome but it's not an inevitable outcome okay that's good um <clears throat> So I want to, as we, as we talk about leadership and your experiences, I definitely want to get to the genesis of your book. If you can real quick. So after Warren, talk briefly about where you went um, and maybe just a bit on what you did in DC and now what you do at Strat in Omaha and what your role is relative to the community now. So after, um, after Warren, I, I went to so I had a great job leaving Warren. So I, I spent the last year as the aide-de-camp to the 20th Air Force commander. Um, and so he uh, was able to set me up with a pretty sweet job in DC working on the air staff. Um, and I started out working in the career field manager's office. So it was trying, it was basically like human resources for the 13N community for ICBM operators, um, which was super, interesting job and a very, very fascinating career health type stuff. Uh, and then from there, I worked uh, policy and strategy, um, specifically uh, worked on implementing the, the Air Force's portion of the Trump NPR, um, making sure that the Air Force, uh, different, there's a lot of 
herding cats towards uh, trying to get um, the Air Force to fulfill its obligations per the NPR. And then um, spent my last year there working in the counter weapons of mass destruction section, um, basically trying to decide, uh, write a concept for how we could operate in and through a nuclear uh, hazard environment. Um, really? So, yeah. Okay. Um, so in the event that we found ourselves in a fallout type situation, what do we do kind of thing? Um, so for yeah, the, across the air force or for, yeah, across the air force, across the air force. So yeah, way more like, okay. I think more boots on the ground, airplanes yeah. flying, you know, in a, in a, a, a more of a local conflict less of a global conflict yeah so a theater level problem yep so i have to ask you real quick what was that conversation like outside of um people with the so-called nuke stink because I, I on the other end of the country at nellis we would try to find different ways to have that conversation survival in a in a post-nuclear in a fallout environment, especially for the aviators, we wanted them to have this conversation and no one wanted to have that conversation. So, I mean, yeah. did you have traction because you were on the East Coast, you're in the Pentagon or? Well, so uh, there's a, in, in some ways, yes. Uh, we had, a, we did a pretty good job of going and meeting people where they were. So we, we took trips to uh, to UCOM and to PACOM. We went to, um, we talked to the academic folks down in Maxwell. We talked to the special operators um, in Florida. Um, so we had, we talked to all of the major players. We talked to ACC. And uh, so at, at first, um, you know, we presented them a scenario and we had some, some great help uh, with folks who came up with a, a scenario that was uh, sort of theater agnostic so we could take it anywhere uh, as made up countries and stuff nice. but the yep. features were if you squint you could kind of figure out <laughs> where where we might be talking about yeah. um, and so uh, we said here's the here's the scenario uh, nuclear detonations have happened so you're you're already in it okay so and these are the things that the commander has said you must do um, how would you do them? And uh, being on their turf and uh, saying, hey, we're, we're coming to you with these questions and not telling you that you must do this, but just saying, we're trying to figure out what we would do uh, and what, what we should do. So what do you think? Uh, and generally, they were pretty receptive um, to that. We had more participation in some places than others, but um, generally they were pretty open to the idea. Um, and so then that became what, what they told us then became what we wrote. And then we got it all coordinated. And uh, we, um, we tried to make sure that we were clear, like we understand that this is not a super likely event, um, but the, it's, it may not be the most likely, but it's certainly the most dangerous. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how do we, how do we prepare for being in that most dangerous position? 
Yeah. But, well, that's if they were receptive. That's good because we we had we got some more people to understand. I think traveling to their turf certainly helps. Um, and maybe you're in a headquarters environment, so maybe it gives people a little bit more space to think and breathe. But um, the most likely most dangerous conversation is, is one of the ones we did use to some positive effect when we said this may not be the most likely in the next five to 10 years, but it's certainly the, the worst of, of the possible outcomes, right? If we start to fight up a larger war. So, okay, so I, so I derailed you. So that was headquarters Air Force. That was air staff, A-10 work altogether, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so then from there, I went to U.S. Strategic Command where I am now. Um, I work in the air room. Um, and I am on the ICBM targeting team. Um, so I've been doing that for about a year and a half. Right now I'm the chief of training for the team. So that's again, coming up with scenarios and putting them through the paces and trying to make sure that on, you know, when things got really bad, then we could retarget our missiles in a way that, um, you know, is a lot, uh, allows us to continue to fight this nuclear war, which we hope we never have to do, but yeah. It's um, it's a lot of the the will part of the nuclear deterrence equ equation, right? If if nuclear deterrence is capability times will, um, we demonstrate will uh, pretty much every day uh, at Stratcom, where we're going through exercises and we're we're working things out and saying, okay, if this happens, how are we going to respond? And and then actually testing our ability to do it. Um, in a in a quick way if we have to or in a deliberate way if we uh, can if we have the time to slow down and do it in a deliberate manner okay so yeah you're at you're really at the center where a lot of the operational planning happens um yes. and certainly at a place where a lot of a lot of missileers and folks that spend time in the nuclear community would want to go is STRATCOM, since that's really the nerve center of, of where a lot of our big plans get put together um, and where a lot of that coordination happens. So given the time and just, I wanna make sure we get to a couple of things in particular. So I wanna understand, you know, do you, well, first off, do you see yourself, how much, how much more time do you see in the Air Force or do you see more Air Force time in you you're not quite at the 20 year mark yet, but you certainly are on your way there. So is that, is that you think what's on the horizon? Have you and Catherine talked at all about what your Air Force future looks like from here on? Yeah, so Catherine and I have always said that we would take it one assignment at a time. Um, yeah, and, that's probably a good way to do it. Yeah, and that we recognize that if for some reason uh, we got to 18 years, and it wasn't working for our family, um, then we would not keep going. Uh, looking at the outlook now, um, I think we're excited about the possibility of another assignment moving next summer. So it's summer of 23. Um, if we do that, we'll incur a two-year commitment, which will get us till 25, which is at 17 years. Yeah. Um, so at that point, it's like, okay, I could do one more assignment and we could potentially be done. Um, so I, 
I think right now we're thinking 20, but we, if after the next assignment we said, yeah, this is, this just is not worth it, then we would, we would give up the pension and it, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I certainly get that. I, I meet a lot of people that, that don't, and particularly on the outside in the civilian world, it's tough when you explain to them what that pension program is, what the legacy retirement program is for folks, your and my age and older. Um, it's, it's tough for people to get for sure. So what, so what led to the book? I, I wanted to ask, I mean, I think we talked about it maybe a while ago. It's we're going on two and a half years. It was 2019. Right. So what led, what led to the book? What got you to a point where you said, I need to write, I need to do something. Um, and that something is publish a book say, and why a book versus, I don't know, any of the alternative, a blog or a, a podcast, although you do have a podcast we'll talk about too, but why the book and why then? Yeah. So it actually started, um, when I first got to F.E. Warren, I was in the Codes Vault, um, and I I saw myself spending a couple years there, and then possibly moving over to headquarters 20th Air Force, uh, not in the aide de camp role that I ended up with, but uh, you know a, a staff role there. Yeah. And um, but because of the changes in the career field at the time, um, they they changed up how they wanted to do flight commander. Um, which is was kind of an opportunity that had passed me by under the old system, uh, and I was I was told, "Hey, you're you're on the list to be a 320th flight commander," um, and the and I was told the list was one deep, um, so you <laughs> okay. should probably you should probably schedule an interview. Do the math, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and so I I did I did the interview, I got the job. And then I had about, because of my codes responsibilities and what I had potentially had access to, I ended up having about five months where I was just waiting to move over. I was still doing, spending time in codes. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do as a leader. Like I, like, um, I, I remember being at the Air Force Academy and being asked by, um, the active duty commander um, in an interview, like, hey, what's your leadership philosophy? And I kind of muddled through something that uh, didn't get me the job um, that I was hoping for. And it had been a question that had kind of stuck with me ever since. And I was like, I wonder if I, if I should start working on like a leadership philosophy. Um, and so I, I wrote down some words, I talked to some people and so I, I kind of sketched out what I thought might be good for that. And then I um, just kind of got into the job. And uh, obviously, our, our squadron commander was awesome and, and helped me shape it a little bit more. And just as I was learning what we were doing, and we were doing things differently from uh, old missiles to new missiles, and I was trying to think of like, why is this, why, why is this so much better to me than what we're what I'm accustomed to, like, what is it about this that makes me go, yes, this is the way we should be doing things. And as I started thinking about it, I just started writing, writing it down and making notes and, and 
just basically as something that I wanted to come back to later. You know, if I were to get a, another leadership um, responsibility again down the road, I, I wanted something that I could reference. And as I wrote down more and more and more, suddenly I had like, I had like 200 pages, you know, <laughs> worth of, worth of notes. And I was like, you know, uh, obviously I, I will benefit from looking back on, on this later, but yeah. um, maybe other people could too. And so I put it together and I sent it to um, a, a friend of the family who is a book editor and said, hey, could you look this over and see if you think it has potential? And so she looked it over and she said, yeah, I think, I think it, you know, I'd like you to change this, 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 and this. And I mean, it's a whole laundry list of things that sure uh, needed improvements, but um, you know, she's, she basically said, I think you've got, you've got something here. And um, so I was like, well, let's go for it. Um, so the, the book, you know, it didn't really ever start out with the idea that I was going to write a book, I just sort of had one uh, after I'd written enough stuff down and then I um, massaged it a little bit, shaped it into what it ended up being. So what's, so, so what is your leadership philosophy? So boil, boil down, I suppose. <laughs> I, in, in the intro, I recommend people grab the book. I'll say it again, grab the book for sure. Um, yeah. but the, but the pithy version, if you will, what is your philosophy now? And, and has it changed since you wrote the book, I should say? Um, so I think the bones are still the same. Um, I am kind of working on, uh, it's not a sequel. It's a, it's a totally different book, um, okay. but another leadership book. Um, but the bones are the same. And so I'll, I'll use the nuclear leadership model from, uh, the book that I wrote uh, is basically that if, if you want to lead people, you have to understand people and understand their value, right? And it is their value and their ability to influence those around them that's eventually going to be your uh, success, your path to success as a leader, right? It's team success is leader success, right? So you have to be able to uh, build an area, build a, an environment that is conducive to allowing the free flow of thoughts and the free flow of communication uh, across the organization. And so the way you do that is one, respect, respect for all people, respect for yourself as the leader, um, first and foremost, like, and knowing that, that, this is your, your job and that you are capable of doing this job because I think some people shy away from leadership because they think uh, either that they don't possess the right qualities or, um, or that the job is too big for them or whatever the case may be. Like, no, you, you are an incredible person and you can, you can do this. Like any, I, I believe anybody can be a leader, just have to go at it with the right mindset. Um, and so then you... And, it, and that doesn't mean that everyone should be a leader, but that everyone ha possesses the ability. And then once you have that respect for yourself, you can direct that respect outward and know that every person that you meet has unique and wonderful capabilities that they can then use 
Um, and then if you uh, couch that with um, bringing in an element of, I call it love in the book, um, which is a little bit mushy, but like truly love for people, you know, it's, it's like, I can, I can joke around with you and we can have fun with one another and we can uh, create this collaborative environment. And I can, I can ask you about your family and what you care about and what you're passionate about. And um, we can learn a lot about each other and we, and I can then say, okay, well then that gives me more opportunities to figure out how I can also use you um, to accomplish other things. And then I also have to give you opportunities to grow, right? That was the biggest thing that I took from my global strike challenge time was I had an opportunity to grow. I had an opportunity to see beyond just the, the standard uh, go on alert, come back from alert, do a training event, go back out on alert, you know, that rotation, that fog that just bogged us down. So in a, in a nutshell, uh, people are at the center and their ability to uh, propagate ideas and spread ideas is built on the leader's ability to create a culture where respect, love, and growth can, um, can thrive. It's really hard to argue. Well, I'm not, not that I'm going to try to argue, but it's hard to argue with, with really any part of that. So what's the, so what's the second book? touch on. I know you said the bones are the same, but to the extent you're willing to share, what's the second book talking about? Yeah. So this is, this is new for me, everybody. Right. So this is, I don't, I don't know if this it's is, new. it's new for a lot of people. Okay. Um, so I, I think in general, we have a poor definition of leadership. And what I mean by that is a co collectively there's like thousands of different leadership definitions, right? Oh, yeah. And Millions they books, basically so. all come down to leaders get shit done, right? Like at its basic terms, like it, when we're looking for leaders, like, you know, if we're looking for a, a coach to win football games or basketball games, like we're going to measure their success as a leader by how many wins and losses there, there are, right? Like, yeah, for better, for better or worse. Yeah, you're right. For better or for worse. That's or you look at our, our annual performance reports, mm -hmm. they're like 14 lines of stuff you've done, right. right? And that's supposed to somehow equate to leadership. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, so the, our picture of what is a leader, our mental picture is flawed because it's all about what results are you going to get? And um, you know, sometimes that, that works. It, I mean, it's worked very well for empires throughout history. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and a lot of corporations today where you, you have a hard charging leader who, um, you know, says, you know, check all your emotional baggage at the door and just come in, show up and do your work. And, uh, we don't have to talk about feelings and all those, all these other things. Um, you know, and you can just show up and, and do your job and, and then go home and then, then you can have your personal life out there, but don't bring your personal life into work because we're, we're, that won't get us the results that we're looking for. Right. And so the, uh, but, and what we're seeing 
I mean, we're seeing it right now in real time with the great resignation, right? People are tired of that. They don't, they don't want to just be a cog in the machine, you know, and right now, I mean, like players in the NBA or NFL, like they have more power than at ever any other time, right? Where they can demand a trade or they can, they can lobby their general manager to go out and sign this particular player to join their roster. Like that's unheard of when I was growing up, like you showed up, you played your, to your contract and you just, you just did your, your business. And then that was, that was it. You stayed in your lane. Everybody stayed in those lanes pretty strictly. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm using sports as an example because it's uh, easily relatable, but you see this a lot in, especially, you know, millennials and Gen Z as they're coming up, like the, the people within the organization are going to wield way more power than the leaders have in, in the past or than, than they ever have in the past. And so as leaders, um, organizations, uh, leaders within organizations have to find a way to extract the most out of these people so that they can still get stuff done. Like that's not going to go away. Our, our emphasis on productivity is not going to go away, but the definition needs to change from leaders being the ones who get stuff done to leaders helping people to get stuff done. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, the nuance is slight, but it's significant because it puts the focus, the center people at the center of, of the equation. Right. And so my, my thought is that in order to get there, uh, our, our picture of a leader has to change um, from not so that we're not thinking about leadership like a leader, but we're thinking of it more like a therapist would because therapists are in the business of helping people. And the way that they go about their business, and that's not to say that we're going to replace therapists with leaders. Like therapists have (laughs) have have a huge role to play in this yeah yes i i appreciate my therapist for who she is as a therapist that's true but yeah yeah okay but but as as if we're taking more of a therapist approach to leadership like therapists are really good at connecting with people right they can they set up the room right yeah they they you know they make a comfortable environment for you to come into you know they're they're welcoming they know your name you know all those things they they can connect with you on a real level and then they react or they, they don't react. They, they, um, they, they take a pause when you say something and they don't immediately rush to try to fix the problem. They're more about trying to unravel it and get to its core, right? Um, and then once we get to the, the core of the problem, then we can start working on uh, strengthening what's there and start to give you new exercises, like if you're a physical therapist, um, give you some exercises that are going to help you with that particular issue. And then they, and then they spend more time working on the craft and, and honing it and getting it to a, um, to a, a, a workable state. So if leaders took on more of that side of things and saying, okay, at, at my, at my core, my job is to help people get their stuff done, I think we'll have a more success in the future in building 
organizations that people, quite frankly, want to work for. So what so do you think? Go ahead. Sorry. Well, so you mentioned the great resignation. So what do you think? And you kind of you kind of spoke to it, but what's ultimately behind the great resignation such that it is because it for a time right it was it was cool to crap on millennials right we don't work hard enough or we ask too many questions or we're not willing to just to just sit down shut up and get the work done so i mean acknowledging everything you just said and these days we've we've heard some big names simon simon sinek and those other big names famous in the space among them that are talking about they're saying millennials it's not about them not wanting to work it's that you don't understand them and they don't want to work for you so is it is it what is it is it on the on the part of the the quote unquote leader or manager or the senior executive type do they just not want to evolve to connect with them is there is it a is it a choice? Is there something natural in the dynamic that's unfolding now? What is what is behind this? I think it's more that they don't know how to, right? That that um, that we have grown up, uh, you know, with a certain picture of what a leader is and what a leader does, and we've been following the our, all of our management textbooks have been saying, you know, this is how you. Uh, you motivate people with carrots and sticks and you uh, if you if you want to cover up your quarter term losses you can lay people off um, you know and then then you'll have more profits that way you know and and like these skills skills I'll put in air quotes right like have been something that we have taught our leaders to do over time and we haven't taught them more of the human skills um, that are necessary to um, meet people where they are and actually find out, okay, what works. And so, and people get bogged down by that. And, and when we have to force people to compartmentalize work and home life and say, here you're at work and there you're at home, mm -hmm. um, I think it, can be really draining on on us to have to switch back and forth. Like if we could find a way to integrate those things together. So one of the other parts of the the new book that I'm working on is like, what what are people like? Usually we we think of people as like um, in two dimensions, right? It's either your rational brain or it's what you're doing, right? But it's head it's we're actually three-dimensional beings. We have head, we have hands, you know, what we're doing. And then we also have heart and our emotional center. And I think in a lot of times our leaders will neglect the heart or think that we can influence the heart by simply providing a rational, um, you know, a rationalization or a logical argument. And that'll be enough to get the heart on board and and then we'll get them to do the work instead and that's sometimes works but most of the time it doesn't i mean our the heart wants what the heart wants right yeah and we are not rational no like hardly ever really <laughs> right we're, we're not thinking beings 
yeah, yeah. We're, we're not thinking beings who sometimes have emotions we're emotional beings who sometimes think and um because we make you say okay at the at the workplace this is what you do here's your the hands part follow you know do do the thing with your hands and we don't ever bring the heart into it we don't get the results that we want in the long term and when people have to segregate head head from heart or hands from heart it's just it becomes very draining and it becomes we're less willing to put in the 12 hour days and the weekends and the nights and all those things we're just it gets too draining people are not meant for that what they're meant to do is to have head heart and hands all together in harmony with one another and when we can achieve that harmony then if you can achieve that harmony within the workplace man there's nothing you can't do there's nothing you can't get that person to do so as a side note we're emotional beings that sometimes think uh, is is fantastic and highly quotable um tweetable i might say so then what about the work-life balance thing because i spent a long time trying to compartment work from life the, the family home all the things that the heart wanted to do and be with when i had to when i had to leave that stuff behind and go do work and so and 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 military maybe we can make the excuse right military time is different but ultimately we, it's it's still a, it's still that same challenge where is that a good idea then because i've i've heard plenty of people now argue that work life balance is a myth and i tend to believe that but what do you say about work life balance because it it seems to it's it sounds like that whole compartmenting separating the two things is just totally bunk in your mind it is um and it's easy for me for me to say this i understand because i'm in a job right now with a leadership team that i absolutely love like it's the i it's I mean, it's, yeah, okay. it's the most fun that I've had in a work work environment um, since we were in the three twentieth, and may even be better. Um, Damn. Okay. So, I mean, I know that doesn't say a lot to your audience, but to you, I know that that means that, quite mean, a that bit. means something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. So, I I one of the leaders in this office um, was talking about. Um, you know, work-life balance, and he doesn't like the word balance. Um, and it's because it implies that you have to push on one side and then you're, oh, now you're out of balance. So you have to push back on the other side. And now, oh, now I'm out of balance. So push back on the other side. So the idea is not to say, well, I have to have eight hours at work so that I can have eight hours at home. And then I can have eight hours of rest. You know, like that's, that's not necessarily balance i don't know anyone who can do who's done that right exactly exactly that's not a thing yeah exactly that's that's not something that you can you can get to and if you're trying to get to that then uh, it can lead you to do a whole bunch of things that are are unhealthy right like i worked an 80 hour week so now i have to take a week off and so then you're 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 in the extremes right you're yeah. never oh, yeah. in a, a spot where there's harmony and so and, and that's really why I like the, the harmony word because um, I, I was a musician in, in high school, uh, played in the orchestra. Um, and so you've got your 
violins are broken out into at least two different sections, sometimes three, just in the within the violins. Um, and then you've got your your cellos and your viola and your bass. And we're all playing the same sheet of music, but we're not playing the same notes, right? Um, but it's all it's all moving along at the at the same beat. And so harmony is when you can take all of these different melodies that you have throughout your life and you can um, put them together in such a way that it makes beautiful harmonious music. Um, and that is, so you wanna achieve harmony at work and you wanna achieve harmony at home. And so being able to, um, you know, like I said, I'm really fortunate right now. I feel like I can take my whole self into work with me right now. And then I I'll also have my my whole self at home, and um, even even if I have to spend more time at work because you know there's uh, something happening in the world that requires my attention, um, then I can I can still give my whole self at home, and I can know that when I'm at work and I'm working these hours that I'm not accustomed to working because um, we're in some sort of a surge or whatever. Um, I'm able to then, um, you know, give my whole self to that because I know that, that this team is such that I can bring my whole self to it and I'm in harmony with it the whole time that I'm there. So what, so what is it about your, what has your supervisor or your teammates, what, what have, what have the leaders around you now done to create that or, or it, I, I, I tend to, I tend not to think that it's accidental or maybe it is accidental, but what is it about the environment that you're in that would lead you to say, you know, it is perhaps the most fun and the most, I can't remember the word you said, but it, it could be the best leadership dynamic maybe that you've experienced in the Air Force, which is it, given the amount of time you've been in the Air Force and yes, the experience you and I had together at Warrant, that is saying something. So what is it that they're doing? What's so special about them at this time? So a big part of it is there's so much trust in us. Um, like our, our job is, um, you know, is one that I would have thought would have had a lot more uh, higher up oversight than it does. But they, they say, here's the plan. These are, the, these are the spots on the earth that we want you to hold at risk with nuclear missiles. You figure out the best way to do that. And so just the, the freedom we have when we're um, putting together the plan and trying to do it in the most efficient way is, um, is just incredible. And then the trust that they, they have for us um, to do that, they don't they don't come back and check our homework and say, did you do it in the best possible way? Um, they're, they're able to say, hey, our planners are um, the best at what they do. You can't find anyone. I mean, obviously no one else does what we do, but like you couldn't find better people to do it. We trust them. Um, yeah. We trust the, the You're training. You're hired program. there for a reason. Yep. Yeah, they're there for a reason. Oh, yeah. And then while we're there, man, we, we just... Um, you know, we, we are a group that actually that loves each other. Like, um, we're, we're, 
they're celebrating uh, new babies being born and we're celebrating birthdays with each other and we're joking with each other and we're bringing in food with each other and we're encouraging each other to work out. And I mean, there, there's so much like, hey, you know, you take the time that you need. Um, there's, there's no one like, you know, looking at the clock when you come in and be like, oh, 8.15, huh? 45 minutes late. You know, it's like mm -hmm. you show up, you know, at a reasonable time and you leave at a reasonable time. Um, you know, when the work's done, there's no, there's no one saying you need to make sure that you're in, in your seats, the whole eight, nine, 10, 12 hours, however, whatever they decide, like when our work's done, we leave. And, um, you know, some days that's early and some days that's late, but the, the work is getting done. And we have people who are above that, that next echelon of command who are um, constantly fighting to against the good idea fairies, right? That are, that are coming down. Like when they say, hey, we should do this. And they're like, no, that's dumb for this, 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 and this reason. So we have a lot of um, support um, built into to this, uh, this group. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that too. Trust is probably the the number one. Well, I don't want to go too far out on a limb. If you don't have trust, it's hard to see it working. Even if you have, even if you do like each other, or even if you do know each other, right? And particularly yeah. in your world, in your environment right now at Stratcom, um, trying to figure out where to put missiles on spots on the Earth the fact that they trust you to that extent it actually surprises me a bit it probably it, it probably shouldn't that might be freedom that strike teams throughout all of our time in the air force have had but it seems as though i mean that's certainly a job that you could easily micromanage and that you would expect would be heavily micromanaged from yeah, I a policy was... standpoint for optics whatever I was, I was blown away. One of the first targeting packages I, I was working on, um, we did something and I, I was like, wow, that's, I mean, that's pretty awesome. And we can just do that. Like who do, who do we have to call for approval? Like, is that, is that like an 06 level or is that a two-star level? And it's like, bro, you're that guy. It's up to you to do this because they're trusting you to optimize the war plan and be the most as, as efficient as possible with with your planning and i was i was like wow oh boy that's, that's yeah. something um yeah it caught me off guard too so then so how much longer did you say you have at stratcom you think uh next summer should okay. be when i leave and so, so are you are you ready to leave would you stay longer or is it just simply a matter of career-wise it makes sense to leave now or leave well leave next summer i should say so it's a year on but yeah well uh if i could keep this same team man i would never leave but the the pcs cycles being what they are um yeah, people are changing out this summer and it will be different when the new people come in um obviously we're not going to have this same sort of feeling but we will have um we have some great people coming in that I'm super excited about working with. Um, so 
I, but that said, when it comes to the end of my time here at, at, at Stratcom, I, I would imagine that, that a, a wing job might be back in my, in my future, um, which I would be totally on board with because I think between my experience at, at 20th, at um, the Pentagon and at Stratcom, I think I could provide a perspective um, that not many other people could yeah. Um, oh, yeah. at, at the wing. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about that opportunity to um, mentor young missileers and let them know, like, like we always heard it, right? Like your job's important. Um, mm -hmm. but we didn't often have the people who had the experience of, um, sitting in a, in, in you know, weekly or monthly nuclear posture review meetings. Right. And knowing like, this is what the office of the secretary of defense is no kidding talking about right now. Um, or this is what Stratcom is doing today. Uh, in terms of the targeting or the exercises or whatever that they're doing. You know, I think I have experience that um, I could lend to uh, to people who, and it might motivate them to stick around and see what's next. Because honestly, six years on crew is a long time. It's a long yeah. time. And if you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next for your third assignment, and you're trying to, you know, it's like... Uh, I don't really know what's out there. I know what's out there because I worked in the career field manager's office. I can let you know that oh, there's, yeah. there's a lot of things that are out there and there are things that may not make sense to you now, but they make sense, you know, to somebody <laughs> and whether or not it's the right thing, we can debate that, but you know, and, and, I, and I would love to have those conversations with crew members. Yeah. The world is much bigger. Basis. Yeah. Than what you think when you're on crew, that's for sure. Even in the old days, it was, if, if anything, it was worse in the old days. Um, so I've been trying to come up with a good segue for this and I haven't. So we'll just <laughs> segue um, by force. Cause I, I want to ask you at least for a couple of minutes to talk about the podcast, to talk about where that came from our nuclear family, you and Catherine, um, you certainly have plenty of experience parenting and so plenty of fodder for conversation, I'm sure. But where did that come from? And, and what led you guys to start that and to start having those conversations with a wider audience? Yeah, so uh, Catherine and I have been talking about parenting since, since we started dating, um, honestly, partially because uh, Catherine's dad is a, um, he's a, he's an author, or Catherine's grandfather, sorry, is uh, an author. He wrote um, a, a series of parenting books um, that have done pretty well um, over the years. And uh, so he's, he's a psychiatrist. And um, so parenting conversations have always been a part of her life um, growing up. And then when we were dating, um, Catherine's when we started dating Catherine's youngest sister had just turned three um so we got to see how she was raised and then there that led to a bunch of conversations about um you know how do we how to how to raise kids and eventually that turned into like how do we want to raise our kids and all these 
all these conversations have happened since long before we were even married. And then as we got married and then started having more conversations and we were always just trying to look ahead to the next thing and, and just try to prepare as much as you can, which you can't prepare for anything. Like kids are going to do what kids do and yeah. it's going to be tough. And it's yeah, you're be never healthy. ready for this. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but she was having um, conversations with, with people here and uh, she was like, uh, and Catherine's not a big advice giver. Um, like she will sometimes say, you know, well, would you like my thought or, but she doesn't want to like, like just put it out there. And, Let me and tell say, you what you should do. This is yeah. what you need to do. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of that way, that way too. Um, but if you want my opinion, I'll, I'm, I'm willing to share it, but I, I don't usually force my opinion on others. And so we were talking about it and we were like, she, she was like, I just wish there was a way that I could give people advice without giving them advice or telling them that I'm giving them advice. And yeah, well, so I, and I had been kind of toying with an idea of a podcast a little bit for my book for kind of similar reasons, but um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really feel like it, I had, you know, the, I didn't think it was going to work. So to be quite honest, but then I said, so it kind of popped in my head, like, what if, what if you started a podcast? And she was like, I don't do like, I, I can't do a podcast. Like I was like, well, what if we did it together? And, um, and I could like ask you questions and you could ask me questions. You could get both perspectives, um, you know, male and female perspectives on, on parenting. And she was like, Oh, well, that might be a little bit better. And then it just came to me. And I was like, because everything in our life revolves around nuclear. And I'd be like, yeah. oh, and we could call it our nuclear family. And she was like, I like it. <laughs> and that was um, it. That was the selling point. That was it. Yeah. So, so then we were like, okay, we have to figure out how we're going to do this and get the equipment and all that. And what are we going to talk about? And we immediately wrote down like 50 ideas of things that we could talk about. And, yeah. um, and we're like, well, that's, that's certainly enough to go off of um yeah. Oh, yeah so hey let's 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 give it a shot and we'll try it and we'll see how it goes and um we've had a lot of fun doing it and it's one of those things where uh it keeps us accountable too and a lot of our episodes is like what we're going through real life yeah and just saying like, at the time yeah are we are we doing this right um or could we be doing it better and so it's just been it's it's a lot of fun and you get to do it with, uh you know i get to do it with my best friend so that's that's pretty cool too so then do we get will will our nuclear family follow the family until all the kids are grown and and moved on you think uh it will it will keep going for as long as it goes take it one episode at a time okay <laughs> yeah yeah we we don't have an end date on it right now um Right now we're just having fun making it. And if it stops being fun, then we'll stop making it. But um, in the meantime, we're, we're having a blast and um, having a lot of fun talking to people, uh, you know, offline about the episodes and like, Hey, what about this? What about that? And yeah, um, it's certainly fulfilling. It's what, what we hoped that it would as serving as a starting point for conversation for parents to enjoy raising kids because 
having kids is fun. Um, you know, it's not always fun. It's not always joyful. There's a lot of challenges with it, but if we can have fun having parents you know, as parents, then we should, then, then let's do it. Like, why not? What do you enjoy most about it? Or what do you and Catherine enjoy most about it? I think honestly, we just enjoy being with each other and talking to each other. Um, you know, and it's, uh, you know, there's an audience that gets to hear it, but we just enjoy having the conversation. And honestly, we're going to be talking about this stuff anyways. Why not do it with some mic with a microphone in front of our face <laughs> and, and see if some other people get something out of it too. I mean, that's, that's it's tr truly what we would do in our spare, in our free time anyways, because we yeah. just love talking about parenting and then, um, if we can encourage others, then, then all the better. And we have a seat at the table with you. Yeah. Yeah. Has it, has it changed your parenting then at all? I mean, so these conversations might be happening anyway, but has any part of, I don't know, the, the structure of it or the deliberateness of it, I mean, what, what, what effect do those conversations then have on the decisions you make with the kids? I, um, so it definitely changes things. Uh, in that it just it allows us to continue to keep focus on it. So, so maybe it doesn't. So sometimes you'll hear us mid episode go. Actually, we should really be better about that in our own parenting. Yeah. You know, we're we're saying something that you should do, and then we're like, actually, as we think about that, <laughs> Riley Ann, our youngest, or or Garrett, it's like, oh man, we should really should really be a little bit more intentional about that. So it's a way of keeping us accountable. I don't know if it changes our parenting, but it definitely keeps us accountable to what we are, are hoping for. Okay. Okay. Um, so we, we've been talking about an hour, a little bit more than an hour, and it's the end of a very long week. So to, I guess really, I'll just turn it over to you. What, what last thoughts do you have? I guess the, the only other thing I would ask is what, what are you excited about for the rest of the year? We're mid-March, it's March 18th, 2022. So you've got plenty going on at work. Uh, you enjoy where you are right now work-wise, which is good to hear. Um, you and Catherine, the podcast is still going. You are having fun, hopefully at most of the time raising your kids. Uh, there's always gonna be those down moments, certainly, but what are you excited about in 22? And what, what final thoughts do you have? Um, so I'm really working on uh, being excited about the unknowns that, that lie ahead. Because um, I'm usually someone who likes to have things pretty well planned out and likes to know where things are going. And just in my experience, things have not often turned out the way that I thought that, that they would or that they should. And, uh, you know, going back to you know, even being a missileer in the first place is not something that was ever on my list. Malmstrom was the my third choice for uh, where I wanted to go out of Vandenberg. Yeah. Um, and it ended up being awesome, uh, you know, leaving Malmstrom to go to a different missile wing was certainly not on my to-do list. Uh, becoming a flight commander was not something that I was doing. And I can just go, I can 
I didn't think Pentagon was going to have uh, de camp was never on my list. I didn't think Pentagon was a, a thing that was going to happen. Um, so you can just go down the list of all the things that I've done in my career. And um, they've never been something that I thought was going to happen. And as I look forward in 2022, yeah. um, you know, our, our promotion board for Lieutenant Colonel just met. So we'll see you know, so we'll find out those results in uh, probably June timeframe. Um, so we'll then that will change things. Uh, I, I'm taking over um, the the missile team um, in July, um, and we're we're losing uh, a bunch of people, and we're bringing a bunch of people in. Um, and I, when I showed up on the missile team everyone there was someone that I'd worked with before. And now like we have two people that are staying uh, on the team that I've worked with for the past year. Um, and then everyone else is new and I've never worked with them directly before. Uh, and so I'm normally that would make me um, pretty nervous um, because I like to know my audience and know when I can joke around and when I can't and, you know, yeah. those kind of things. And uh, I certainly know that now, but I, with the group that we currently have, and I don't know that with the, the incoming group, but I'm excited to find out what that looks like and to really, you know, put my, um, my leadership, you know, to the test and just see, okay, how, to, what does that look like to um, be in charge of people who are older than you? Um, Cause yeah, it's weird. Um, you know, but just try to see what that looks like and, and to um, keep going forward with the, with the podcast. And I, I don't know where our conversations will take us there, um, but just curious to see what that looks like. And um, there's a lot of things that could, could possibly change this summer and um, moving into the fall with Garrett starting sixth grade. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so many things changing with the kids and, um, you know, and I'm just really excited to embrace that change and just to see, see where God leads us and see what, um, what comes of it all. And, and to really just work on embracing that. I, I don't know, but I also don't have to know. Um, and that just, uh, enjoy the ride for what it is. It's like you, it's like you do this normally. That's a really good place to end. Uh, and I'm really as if as if it was planned, which I could not have planned it better myself. Um, Matthew Ditson, thanks. Thanks a lot for coming on with me and hanging out for about an hour and a half. Um, an hour behind. I'm sorry, I messed up the time zone, mainly because I had no idea where you lived. I missed an, a year and a half's worth of time, evidently, somehow. Um, but you and Catherine have been good friends of ours for a long time. We met at Vandenberg when I mean, I knew nothing about anything that was Air Force really other than ROTC. You've kind of grown up in it, but we were both new to missiles and, and certainly found a world we weren't expecting maybe in some way. So uh, it was a lot of fun to work with you twice. Certainly a lot of fun to sit next to you in the 320th. Um, and yeah, good luck. So Lieutenant Colonel met this week, you said? Uh, I guess it's a couple weeks ago now. It's the first of the a month. A couple weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So keep me posted. And let me know what the result is this summer. Yeah, we'll do. And then appreciate that. Thanks for yeah. uh, 
inviting me to have this conversation with you. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, again, um, me too. Love listening to the show. So um, yeah, just really appreciate it and um, wish you best of luck and give my best to Maggie and the boys and the dogs. Yep, absolutely. Same to Catherine and the kids. And hopefully, hopefully we see you guys at some point soon in person. Yeah. At some place. Awesome. Or or certainly if you're driving through Ohio, right? We're here. We're right off I-70. We're not far. Awesome. Sounds All right, good man. Take you. care. You too. Okay. Omaha Ditson. Matthew has left the Zoom room. Um so hopefully, hopefully that was enjoyable for you to listen to. Matthew's a smart dude. Um, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but haven't gotten to talk really in a while either. So, you know, of course, part of it's catching up for me. Um, and, and part of it is, you know, I'm learning things right alongside you. There's, there's parts to his history. Certainly I didn't know. Um, I, I, I remember talking about his dad and his time in the air Corps, the fact that his dad was a little bit older. And so, you know, that's certainly a cool piece of history. Um, but the medical school thing did not know, um, you know, and, and, to, and to get a better sense of his progression through the Air Force, through the machine that is the Air Force and through the missile community, his take on FIP, Force Improvement Program, of course, is interesting to me as somebody who lived and breathed the FIP environment for uh, really the latter half of my career. Adjusting my chair, excuse me, it doesn't go any higher. Okay. I'm short, so that's a perpetual issue for me, but that's okay. Um, so, you know, every time I've done an interview, I spend a few minutes afterward just to kind of wrap it up and, and sometimes to riff on something that, um, that the guest talked about. I will absolutely quote, we're emotional beings that sometimes think, not thinking beings that are sometimes emotional. I know he said it in the reverse order. I think either way, it sounds brilliant. Um, and I think he's right. You know, this is what I am, am going to study now. This is why I've started to study a lot more about the brain and decision-making um, and why I've, I've kind of taken a real interest in psychology, because ultimately I think it's true that we are, we are evolved to a certain extent. No, I won't say it that way. The, our irrational selves are still our natural selves. I, I think to apply rationality, reason, logic, the analytical side, it's something we have developed and we have evolved to do. And it's given us the ability to, to build the societies and the technology and all the things that we've been able to, but that's not necessarily our natural state. We, we don't always want to be in that state and it may not be good for us to try to be in that state all the time. So, you know, to have a philosophy on leadership that gets to the heart of that and tries to account for kind of the truth in human nature is I, I think probably a really good thing, a really good idea. Um, because we are seeing this so-called great resignation where people just aren't motivated by simply the mission, whatever that might be. And they're not motivated by the classic indicators of productivity, right? Widgets produced, money made. Um, I, I've been having several a number of conversations about money motivation lately. And um, as somebody who is not money motivated really at all, 
you know, if, if your metric is dollars saved, dollars made, um, you may not, you, you won't convince everyone. You'll still convince some people. And I'm not saying, I mean, I, I'd like to make enough money to pay the bills, take care of my family, do some fun things for my, my wife and kids. But I've, I've learned, particularly in the last few weeks, I am, I'm not interested in a bigger house or, or more land. I thought I was at one point, you know, but I'm, I'm not. There the things that I want and the, and the work that fulfills me um, won't make us wealthy or uber wealthy in, in whatever the standard definition is, but that's okay. So, you know, so that, so I think I'm, I'm definitely interested to see where that book goes. I'm definitely interested to hear more about it and to see when it releases. And um, hopefully Matthew, if you're listening to this episode, when it releases next week, just a few days from now, um, you know, either come back on the show or at least give us a heads up maybe, and we can, we can plug it for you and we can encourage folks to pre-order or to order it when it's released and to drop a review into the Amazon machine and um, get the word out that way. If there's one thing that if you listen to season one, you've, you've caught on to this, right? If you're a military veteran, you certainly know this. Really, if you work for any big institution, you know this too. We love our acronyms. So I'm just going to spend a minute and clarify a few of them. Um, I didn't want to interrupt Matthew's flow. He was telling different stories and he was saying a lot of stuff and I, and I, and I wanted to listen to that. And so I didn't want to interrupt him. He mentioned the NPR a few times. That's the nuclear posture review. Every administration theoretically publishes a nuclear posture review that talks about how we are going to position our strategic deterrent, our nuclear weapons force um, relative to the rest of the world. So what are our priorities? Who are we worried about? What are we worried about? And what is that going to lead to in terms of investment in time, energy, resources, um, you know, those three things are synonymous. Ultimately, what are we going to focus on? We're building a new ICBM. Whether you agree or disagree with that program, the fact that we're building a follow-on to the Minuteman 3, that, that is a long-term strategic decision made um, based on intelligence estimates, how much longer we've got in the Minuteman 3 lifespan, which we keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. So the ground-based strategic deterrent is one of those things that you would see reflected in these posture reviews where we're talking about where to put our money um, and where to put our attention as, as years turn into decades, right? How do we keep the U.S. strategic position strong relative to an ever-changing world? Uh, and case in point, Russia and Ukraine here in the last three weeks or so. Uh, counter weapons of mass destruction. He actually, I don't think he used the acronym for that one. I wrote it down, but you heard it. He was the career field manager or the CFM. He really, no kidding, knows where every 13N opportunity is around the world. So he's absolutely right. I think when he goes back to the wing and good chance, if the air force is running it the same way it was when I was in good chance, he goes back to the wing after this assignment. He is in a prime position to help young crew members understand that there is life after the wing, after the first and second tour. And that life is, no kidding, worldwide available. Um, back in the day, we assumed it was the three wings and 20th and maybe the Matchcom where you really didn't want to go. But these days, especially, right, it's, it's becoming clear 
that the nuclear operator's expertise means something more than simply the alerts that we pull. The alerts are critical, but there's a lot that we learn and a lot that we teach and train, I think that applies. And certainly they need that expertise all over the place. So UCOM and PACOM, US European Command, uh, headquartered in Stuttgart, I think in Germany and the four star that commands UCOM is also the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, which is the coolest military title ever, right? If you've heard that title before, maybe it's because you were reading about Eisenhower. He was the first Supreme Allied Commander um, and ran what was then the Supreme Headquarters for Allied Expeditionary Forces. I think that was World War One. Maybe that was World War One. Uh, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe today is headquartered in Belgium, and that's the seat of the NATO command structure. NATO has been in the news lately. If you've paid any attention, if you've read literally any news story in the last couple of weeks, you've probably seen some mention of Russia and Ukraine. Um, and, among, and among the news stories has been NATO for the first time since the treaty entered into force in 1949, deploying the response force. So we have thousands of NATO troops stationed in and around Europe right now to include on uh, in Eastern Europe in the nations that border Ukraine to hedge against a possible Russian incursion into NATO territory. That's a serious deal. It's a serious deal to see NATO mobilized to this extent. Um, and so the commander of US European Command is also always the commander of NATO forces and the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. And so certainly a busy job, certainly a lot on that individual's plate right now. And um, yeah, that's that's that UCOM. PACOM, what we now know as Indo-Pacific Indo Command, responsible for a huge swath of territory on the earth. In fact, I think it's the largest geographic combatant command by area. Uh, the Pacific Rim, Indian Ocean, South Asian subcontinent, traditionally a member of the Admiralty, right? A naval officer, because if you think about it, most of Indo-PACOM, what's like 80% plus is water. So you need to have somebody who understands naval capability. So Indo-PACOM is certainly gets plenty of attention. That's where North Korea, China, Japan, that's where the Taiwan problem rests. Um, I don't remember the name of the strait, but the body of water in between Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia, right? That is some of the high, the most highly trafficked ocean in the world in terms of commerce, moving oil, and moving goods. And so there's a whole lot going on in that theater. So plenty of work to do for, for folks who are at PACOM uh, headquartered in Honolulu or on Oahu in Hawaii. Um, ACC, Air Combat Command, that's a major command in the Air Force in Virginia. Think, think fighters. They don't really have the bombers anymore, I suppose, but think fighters, think Intel, um, UAVs with weapons on them. UAVs without weapons on them, matter of fact. A lot of intelligence assets rest in ACC. So those were the acronyms I took down. You may or may not care about those, but I always want to try to clarify those, particularly for those of you who don't have any military time, military experience. Um, if you are an American, I'm not saying you need to know what all those things mean, but you are certainly footing the bill and supporting 
us in each of those endeavors or at each of those places. Certainly in this environment, in the current strategic environment, uh, it'd be good to be familiar with UCOM, who they are and what they do to some extent. Understanding that UCOM and, and NATO are not synonymous, but they're certainly overlapping um, when it comes to the command structure. And the nuclear posture review, I'd be really curious to see what the new nuclear posture review looks like. I think it was put on hold for probably obvious reasons right now that Russia has moved against Ukraine um, and it's unclear what Putin's end game will be, particularly if Ukraine continues to hold them off. Um, that, that's gonna lead to a lot of questions. It's gonna lead to a lot of additional research, I think, as we build the next NPR, but we will see. Um, all told, it was a great conversation, I thought. Certainly, I hope you do too. If nothing else, if you take nothing else from this conversation, um, I, I would encourage you to think about what your leadership philosophy is. Whether you agree with Matthews or not, um, I've talked about mine before. I'm not going to spend time on, on me. This is about Matthews, and I want to make this now about that question that his commander asked him at the Air Force Academy. Maybe he wasn't prepared for that question. I know plenty of people, myself included, who were asked that question in the past and, and you know murmured something, kind of came up with something on the fly because we weren't conditioned to think about it. And it's not like you run around telling everybody, you know, this is my philosophy. This is what I think. Now I'm going to go lead just like this, right? It's not that formulaic. But the, the reality is if you don't, I think, if you don't take some time um, to think about it, you know, M Matthew knew he was going into a position where he'd be responsible for other humans. He would have direct reports and he would have peer leadership responsibility, um, and he would certainly have indirect influence on plenty more people. He took an opportunity to be deliberate about it, do research, talk to other people, reflect on himself. Um, I would do that for yourself, even and especially if you're not in a supervisory or leadership position now, this is the opportunity to do it. Because if you wanna make any kind of impact wherever you work or live, you're going to find yourself in a position where you're responsible for other humans. I think that's a foregone conclusion. If you want to make an impact, hopefully positive, right? If you want to make an impact, you're going to end up influencing other people. If you are intent then on influencing other people, you should put some thought into how you're going to do that. Giving orders is not it. Just I'm just going to put that out there. I'm just going to take a risk and say giving orders is not it. Being directive is not it. And to Matthew's point about the great resignation and what we're seeing now in the workforce and civilian workforce, at least, um, focusing on numbers, on metrics, on, on traditional productivity, that's not cutting the mustard anymore either. Uh, so I would really think about what leadership is to you and what you think leadership is to the people around you. Um, you know, check in, check in to make sure that the person is green on Skype. And that means that they're at their desk is not leadership. It's ridiculous. Um, and I can come up with plenty more examples. And there's, there's a couple of you out there that know exactly what I'm talking about. And we will get to those some other time. I've taken up enough of your time 
you got to hear Matthew and now you're hearing me blabber on and I'm sure that's not what you signed up for at least today on this episode. Next episode coming up is going to be a solo, so be prepared for that. We are going to talk about Russia, Ukraine, and nuclear weapons. So I'm excited to get into that one, and uh, hopefully you are too. And I'm excited to be back. Um, Yeah, I'm excited to be back. I'm glad to be back in the podcast game. This is season two, episode two. We talked with Matthew Omaha Ditson. It's Friday, March 18th, 2022. This episode will air uh, or will release in the next few days. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got trouble on the podcast platform or you've got a question or you've got an input or you've got feedback, send me an email, A-L-C-H-I-T-T-U-R at gmail.com. It's that simple. Um, Because this podcast is me, my laptop, and a $100 microphone in the basement of my house. I talked about that a bit on the last episode. No more pretension. I I enjoy doing this, um, and hopefully you get something out of it. I'd love to hear what you think. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm not going to try to make you believe that I've got some big production team and I'm in a studio on a balcony in Malibu, right? In my basement in Ohio. It's almost 10.30 at night because this is when the kids are in bed and it just makes sense to record now. Um, But hey, it's the message that matters. So this is the last question. We're going to wrap up episode two of season two. Let me know what you think. In the meantime, keep on listening. Share if you like what you heard. And um, just thank you in advance for your support and for sticking with us as the season progresses. Hope you have a great day or night whenever you're listening to this. Stay safe out there and we will talk with you next time.